0: Welcome to episode 180 of the Perius Assembly Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from the vault studio on the beautiful campus of Grace College and Theological Seminary by my good friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the man who is on a mission to kill geese, John Scott uh, uh, The kill
1: in a hyperbolic sense, Sure. Um,
0: Eliminate geese from his yard.
1: Remove. Okay. Um, I'm not thinking of whacking them or anything, you know, or <laughs> giving them cement shoes or putting oil on their eggs. I've I've seen that that like run to their nest and put like motor oil on their eggs so
0: that they die. Okay, but if if let's say you, you live in a subdivision, so this is not realistic. Let's say you lived out more out in the country, they'd be dead. Would you would you have someone come in to shoot them, or would you shoot them yourself?
1: I'd have someone come in and shoot them. Okay, I would have Brent come in and shoot them, <laughs> most likely.
0: And he would gladly do it. He thinks their meat's delicious. <laughs> yeah, we did have a conversation about that, didn't we? Um, by the way, one eighty. We're creeping yeah.
1: up on two hundred. Yeah.
0: So yeah, twenty episodes. That's like five months. So what's that put us into like October? Somewhere in October we'll hit. Somewhere sometime in the fall. Yeah. It's quite a feat. I I don't know about you, but when I started this thing, I did not think we'd get to 200 episodes.
1: Nope.
0: But here we are. In part because I didn't anticipate us doing this every week. It just sort of happened that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's been nice. I, I never anticipated getting to 200 I thought maybe we had 50 to 100 episodes in us. Yeah. But here we are at 180 and it's just part of a week now. Just yeah. a regular rhythm.
0: Yeah. Except for this time around when this is now the third episode in the same day that we're recording.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's That doesn't feel great. Although I like the lunch
0: break. Yeah. Well, we broke for
1: lunch. That was nice.
0: Yeah. I mean either the coffee is working or – um, the pasta isn 't sitting that heavily in your stomach yeah, you, i you seem I still, to have a, a measure of energy still
1: i still have to, uh, there's still i have some pep you know yeah. there 's a little little bounce <laughs> a little joy
0: yeah, a little twinkle in the slowed eye, yeah, yeah. okay yeah. all right,
1: but yes, getting rid of the geese some uh, somebody told me buy a green laser and shine it in their eye, and they 'll run away so i I went on Amazon and I bought one.
0: Are we allowed to? To talk about that is is PETA going to come after us for?
1: I was told. No, I did not check this out, but I was told that like the Canadian Geese Asso- National Association said,
0: yeah, this is how you get rid of them. Oh, okay. So, well, if the Canadians, yeah, the Canadians, people, yep, they should know about how to get rid of geese. Yeah. Oh gosh. They're they're a geese.
1: They're a nightmare. I hate watching them. They they come waddling over through my neighbor's yard into our yard for whatever reason, and then just our- they got attitude. They do. They're an aggressive, an aggressive bird for sure.
0: In that unnamed uh, institution of higher education that I got my master's degree, they took over parts of the campus. Well, you know, I like to.
1: I, I tell my wife there's two abominable creatures out there. <laughs> One of them is the Canadian goose, and the other is uh, the cat. Uh, Not a cat fan.
0: Yeah, you're gonna. You could get some pushback from people in our audience. We, well, we have to have some cat people in our audience.
1: I'm pretty sure. Our, so. We'll hear like all these noises in in our house. We're like, "What the heck is going on?" And we'll look out front. There'll be like three or four cats in our front yard or on our front stoop. And we don't own cats. We don't feed cats. And I'm telling you, this one cat looks wild. <laughs> I've nicknamed it the puma. The puma. Yeah, and because it 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 has like you know it does not look like a house cat. It looks like an athletic abomination. Like, like it could attack <laughs> something at any moment. And we had a duck living in our front yard for a while. It had its nest <laughs> with eggs. And we thought the cats were going after those eggs. And so we were trying to do things to like get rid of the cats. But they looked like they were having a regular fight club or something in our front yard. It was a real, it's becoming a real problem actually.
0: This is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> cats, ducks, and geese- well, I, all in your all in your little subdivision. The ecosystem,
1: yard. yeah. I, we like the duck. It's left now. It hatched four baby ducklings and and waddled off. Waddled off. Hmm. Okay. We have birds too. Anyway, oh, anyway, that's, yeah. That's
0: been well documented. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've lost my place. Have I done the welcome? Have I done the 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 the, the social media references? Have I done that? Oh gosh. I don't, I, don't th- I don't think I have. Go ahead. Just do them again. Do just again see, yeah. In yeah. the event that I haven't. Um, you can find us on Twitter at VNSPod. You can email the show, variousandsundrypodcast at gmail.com. You can find <laughs> us on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube. And we'd love for you to leave a five star rating and a review. You don't have random cats in your front yard that are, that
1: are like not, clearly not domestic?
0: Um, there are a couple of cats that roam our neighborhood. Now I don't know if they just if they belong, belong to somebody and they just wander freely. Um, they like to they like to hide out under our deck. Mm. So that's 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 where they like to to gather. But thankfully, uh, not not a big not a big issue in the uh, in the Harmon subdivision. Yeah. Well, since this is episode the third episode we're recording on the same day, we have no sports update. Nothing has happened that we're aware of in the last hour that would now be two-week-old uh, sports uh, news. I'm checking. But by now, when this episode drops, will the NBA Finals the, – there's a good chance the NBA Finals are probably over by now. Most likely. All right. Well, it was, we a great, it was a great Finals. Yeah, I'm sure.
1: I enjoyed the highlights each morning. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So let's just jump right into our summer read discussion here. Uh, we are now on to part three of Brian Rosner's book, uh, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward Is Not the Answer. This is a book by uh, uh, from Crossway Publishers. And I guess we should have mentioned they were very generous in sending us free copies. They were. To yeah. talk about this. They actually sent us too many. So
1: we what do you think? Give, give away for March Madness tournament next year? Uh, maybe. Okay.
0: I mean, it's sort of yeah I don't know if it'll we'll still happen by then i okay. I would like to probably give them away before then, okay, but um, in any case, uh, the folks at Crossway are great to work with um so uh want to give them a thank you and a shout out for their for their work, so part three of this book he entitles it uh you are your story, mm-hmm. And so uh, this one's got four chapters. The first one's pretty short. Uh, yes, uh, it's, a, it's called narrative identity, mm-hmm. uh, and then he just talks about life stories, how stories have a, a shaping or sculpting power, um, and then um, it, it is. Uh, These are just some interesting questions to reflect on I think here on page 116. Um, What is your story? How would you answer the following questions? And he has uh, five of them here. What in your past has made you who you are today? What events have defined you? Where are you heading in life? What are your aspirations, hopes and dreams? Have there been any times where, or when, you've lost the plot or gone off script? And one of the um, interesting things that he deals with here, uh, as he goes on, is um, shared stories, and how he tells a little bit about his own family background, which I thought was fascinating. That is fascinating. Yes. Um, so his parents, uh, his dad was is uh, Jewish. And um, – Living in Austria? Yeah. They fled Austria when Hitler came to power in 1938 – took over Austria in 1938. Then they lived in China for 10 years in a settlement basically as kind of refugees mm-hmm. essentially. Before then um, – where they became believers in that, uh, in that settlement. And then they uh, immigrated to Australia. And then his uh, father met an Australian woman and married – her. So um, he makes the interesting point, seeing as I didn't come along until 1959, how can that be a part of my own life story? And he makes the case, well, my father's history affects a number of things about me, including my attitude to education, to refugees, to Jews and Judaism, to European history and culture, playing chess, food, music, and so on. And I, I just think that's a really helpful Observation that's uh, a good pushback to expressive individualism. In the last episode, we talked about how um, our thoughts are not our own. Mm-hmm. You know, we're shaped by our parents and that sort of thing. But that it even goes back further than that. That an understanding of our past that goes beyond even when we were born, yeah, still has a shaping influence on us. Um, and I think that's. I think that's. A helpful correction to the to, to expressive individualism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, a, a small example of something similar, but but
0: much lower stakes. Yeah.
1: Uh, your boys have never lived in Ohio. Uh,
0: actually, John was born in Ohio and lived there for the first two years of his life. But it, your point, I, I I have a good sense of where you're going with this. So, however,
1: continue. they're they're rabid Ohio State fans, even yes. though they. And they would consider themselves Buckeyes, I imagine. Yes. At, at, uh, they both. would
0: see their roots. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And I mean yeah. Jake has never, has never lived in Ohio. Correct. Never had a, a license in Ohio or anything nope. like that.
0: No. Nope. Yeah, I don't know that he's ever spent more than a few days at a time mm-hmm. at any point in his life in Ohio, Jake. Because yeah. he was born in the Chicago area actually
1: well he certainly wouldn't consider himself an a line knife fan no, or anything like
0: that no, you know no or northwestern now, obviously that's a you're right to a much lesser degree um a an example uh of how family history shapes uh shapes that but um you know it's one thing that i did think of in in light of this he doesn't make this connection but i think it's uh this is where, in connection to our last episode, even an understanding of church history can come into this. When, if you understand that we as believers are part of this larger story of what God is doing in the world, going all the way back to what's recorded in Scripture and then beyond after Scripture is closed, mm-hmm. that sense of our people experienced this, mm-hmm. that uh, one of the things that I love to 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 teach on when we get into 1 Corinthians is – um. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is addressing a largely Gentile audience in Corinth, and he says, our fathers went through the desert. Mm -hmm. And he's basically inviting these Gentile Christians to look at the experience of Israel and say, that's my history too. Even though ethnically I'm not Jewish, I'm part of the people of God, and that's the story of the people of God. Mm -hmm. So even though, you know, for us as Christians, you know, we can— we, we should be able to draw on that and have that as a shaping influence in who we are um, today, even though we may not ethnically be connected to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was a, 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 good, um, a good intro to this, story, this section. And then the, the heart of this uh, part three is he's got a chapter on the story of secular materialism and then a chapter on the story of social justice, and then a chapter on uh, the life story of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And he's contrasting those different kind of worldview narratives. And for each one, he identifies what that worldview says is the problem, what the past turning points for that story are, what the present struggle is for that story – and then what the future hope is. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really good. And it's really uh, clarifying. Yes,
1: absolutely. Super, super clarifying. Uh, and even breaking down secular materialism into a couple of different mm-hmm. areas, right? Yeah. He breaks it down into the Enlightenment progress. Yep. Uh, basically, I think we could also say secular humanism at some level. Yep. Uh, the sexual revolution, as yep. well as another one.
0: Uh, and was there one more? Under under and and
1: consumerism.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think, in particular, it's just so clarifying to see, um, when he deals with, uh, sort of the 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 sexual revolution piece of the uh, secular materialism uh, category. I think this does a great job of kind of capturing. A major element of our cultural ethos, the problem, sexual repression and moral codes that constrain sexuality and sexual conduct, Mm -hmm. past turning points, Sigmund Freud, the pain and pleasure paradigm and the pill, the present struggle, removing social norms and sexual taboos and fulfillment through the release of sexual desire and the future hope, sexual emancipation and the authentic expression of the true sexual self. I think that's a really good, clear laying out of, 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 of that reality. But then even you know, the, the, the consumerism piece, the problem, falling short of material prosperity, past turning points, the rise of capitalism and the achievement of material goals, present struggle, the accumulation of possessions, financial security and enjoying one's life to the full. Future hope, material comfort, and happiness. If you want to talk about a worldview that is um, shaping a massive chunk of our culture, oh yeah, that one, that one, absolutely. Um, and it's so it's so pervasive that I think sometimes we can lose sight of its uh, of what it's actually trying to accomplish. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of his chapter on social justice? Well, one of one of
1: the one reflection I had coming out of that chapter uh, was uh, that that kind of as we mentioned probably in our first part, or to you and I two hours ago, uh, was that he balanced. You know, he said like, "Hey, quest for justice is good." There's certainly, you know, you know, he does a, you know, it's not a full on like, this is wrong or this is wonderful. He's like, mm-hmm. actually, there's some good intention here, yeah. and there are some injustice, uh, injustices that are out there. So that was one thing I appreciated uh, coming out of this chapter.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure.
1: I always, I always appreciate a good
0: balancing act. Yes. Um, uh, so here's how he lays it out. And the problem past yeah. turning points, yeah. Injustice—that's the problem. Injustice against various minority groups. Past turning points, egregious examples of historical injustice and marks of genuine progress. Present struggle against all forms of racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia, among other identity-based evils. Future hope: the transformation of society and human nature itself. So I think that does capture a lot of what. Um, the, the the quest for quote-unquote social justice is, um, you know, th- this is a tricky chapter and part of me wonders how how differently it might have been written if he was in an American context. Hmm. And not that he's not – I'm not saying he's in any way ignorant of our American context, but – You know, obviously social justice is such a lightning rod term. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wonder if he might have defined it more clearly or – I don't know. I'm just – I'd be curious to know if he would have done anything different Um, and that's not a criticism. And I'm sure some people might read this chapter and say he's too sympathetic to certain aspects of social justice. And of course others would read it and go, oh my gosh, he's – you know – not sympathetic enough. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I think he probably threaded the needle pretty well there. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, he's he's certainly not. Um, he certainly uh, one of the issues with defining social justice is um, it it doesn't have a agreed upon definition anywhere, as far right. as I can tell. Yeah. Um, and so. When he kind of outlines social justice as the marginalized, the allies, and the oppressors, mm-hmm. that's that's something that I recognize, right? That that's something that I'm like, oh yeah, I know this narrative mm-hmm. uh, that is in our present culture, yeah. Um, and it sounds like is alive and well in Australia, yeah, for uh, sure. as well. Which is part of the fascinating part of reading this book from a from a Australian uh, fella, yeah.
0: Well. And and here here I think is one of his most compelling observations. This is on one fifty nine. Uh, he says, "If the story of secular materialism, by seeking fulfillment in gods that fail, turns out to be a tragedy, the story of social justice can so easily turn into a farce, seeking to set the world right in a way that falls far short and leads to ever more conflict and discord. The fatal weakness of both stories, so secular materialism and social justice." is that they seek to produce narrative identities without looking
1: up. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that's a really helpful insight. Um, He goes on. Do you need transcendence to construct a stable and satisfying life story, one that addresses the injustice of our world with grace and truth? I believe you do. And then he gives two examples from movies that I've not seen.
1: Or heard of.
0: Yeah. Um, Though they look interesting. So maybe I'll just check those out. But in any case, um, I think he's hit something there. When you exclude the transcendent, those – it exposes the bankruptcy of those – of both secular materialism and social justice mm-hmm. in all their forms. So um, yeah. But again, I think part of what's helpful is to realize – We are affected by those alternative stories. Mm -hmm. You know, we as believers, even though we have a foundational identity in Jesus, which he goes on to talk about in that next chapter, um, at the same time, what we are, we are still bombarded with a culture and have the internal temptations to want to pursue that kind of Material success or that sort of financial security or things like that or even just have temptations in the area of of social justice or even in sexual expression or those sorts of things that uh, – but these are realities that the Bible speaks directly to. That's what's so amazing about Scripture is that Scripture speaks to these realities. When it identifies idols and things like that, it goes after things like greed and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So – um, again, it just reveals the uh, the beauty of Scripture.
1: Well, and and all of these narratives get a, get a piece of the truth, right? They mm-hmm. they get a piece of the biblical worldview, um, but never the whole thing. Uh, and, yeah. and sort of having that coherent worldview. Um, and so I th- I think at times when when we intersect with some of those things, we can at times as Christians be drawn into those. Other worldviews and neglect other areas of the Christian Mm worldview. And I think we we consistently need to be brought back to the center of the next chapter that he's talking about, right? The the story
0: of Jesus. Yeah. And even the – I think where it tends to be most attractive to us as Christians is we can look at these alternative stories and we can oftentimes, though not always, oftentimes look at the identification of the problem and go – that is a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or there's some version of that problem. Yep. That the biblical worldview goes, yeah, that's not right. That's that's a problem. Um, and then oftentimes it becomes the – then what's the solution? Mm-hmm. Well, now we're really going different directions. Yeah. So Yeah. All right. So next episode, we will finish our little segment discussion of the book. And then the episode after that, we'll have a full episode interview with – The author, Brian Rossner. Yeah,
1: that's going to feel like 2024 to you and I. (laughs)
0: Amen. Amen. All right, John, time to move on to our other main topic for today. And we're talking about The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So um, why do you think The Lord of the Rings is such a popular and compelling story? Because for those who may not know, it was popular way before the movies came out mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. So um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was published in 1954 and 1955. Um, it was a follow-up to The Hobbit in 1937. So big gap between them.
1: Yeah. And, and different audiences as well. Like The yes. Hobbit is very, written very much as a children's book. Uh, whereas Lord of the Rings is more written
0: as a as an epic novel. Yeah, and by the six by the sixties, Lord of the Rings had kind of taken off and become wildly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, I think it can be easy for I think for some people, depending on, on age, they might have been introduced to the movies and then gone back and read the books. Yeah. As opposed to my experience, reading the books many times over and then really looking forward to the movies. So why do you think they're compelling either book or movie
1: well a, a i think they're a good story mm-hmm. uh and and I, I always think a good story is going to get readership a, at some level mm-hmm. um but yeah other than that i i i don't know um you know i was it born out of uh tolkien's own experience in world war 1 uh and you know, I, I think Tolkien would say no, it wasn't. But I think it's hard to go. Yeah, but you were there. You were on the battlefield when the first tanks rolled out.
0: Yeah, it depends on what we mean by that, because th- this was fascinating. So, I was in Oxford last month. Yeah. Uh, on On the Grace trip.
1: Just dropping it, dropping. Oh, I was in I was in Oxford exactly. last month. Yeah. Uh,
0: and our guide, he was talking about uh, Tolkien and Lewis, and one of the things he mentioned is. So Tolkien went off to war with 19 buddies. He was the only one who came home. Mm. The only one out of 19 yeah. that came home. And so it is impossible that that did not shape the way – I mean you want to talk about narrative identity? Oh, yeah. That kind of background experience absolutely shaped who Tolkien is, and I think it shows up pretty clearly in his um, in his writing. However, I think what Tolkien is sort of pushing back against when he when he pushes back is, is he, to say this is not an allegory. Yeah, yeah. This is not a you know kind of one to one correspondence between this character equals that character in reality, or this mm-hmm. the ring equals this. He. This is one of his fundamental differences with Lewis. Lewis was very kind of direct allegory in Mm -hmm. his fictional writing. Like Aslan is clearly the Christ figure. There is no ambiguity there. He will tell you that. It is clear. It's intended that way. Tolkien did not like that kind of writing. It's one of the things that he actually didn't like about Lewis's (laughs) writing. Um, And so – I do think um, for Tolkien, he just wanted to tell a great story, but it's inevitably shaped and influenced by his experience in World War One, and he was a professor of literature, an expert in all these – like Norse mythology and all these different kinds of mythology and then of yeah. course it filters into how he writes.
1: Yeah. Um one thing I remember listening to a podcast about this, uh, by, the, by the way, side note, um, is there a good biography of Tolkien that's out there? Have you read anything?
0: Um, I feel like I did. I'm just trying to remember what it was. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to look. Um, one thing I can recommend is there's a collection of his letters mm. that's, that's been published that's really good. Um, and it kind of gives a behind-the-scenes look even as he's writing Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Uh, I think it's just called The Letters of J.R.R. R. Tolkien. But I, I, I know I read a biography of, of Tolkien, but I can't remember um, which one it was. But um, let's see. I think it was actually two of them here. Maybe I've read two. Yeah, one by uh, Humphrey Carpenter. It's is called J.R.R. Tolkien: A Biography. And
1: I'm making you do research because you're the one with the laptop.
0: Yeah, I, I have not read. That. That's the one I've read. Is that one? There's a few others I see here, but I have not read those. Um, but and there was a movie that just came out recently. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, what was that? I'd forgotten what was about that. that? Movie I forget. I saw it, and it was it was all right. Yeah, nothing spectacular. If I remember right, though, that the the, uh, the family did not w- did not fully endorse that biography, or was not a full participant in it. I can't remember. Oh, really? Why. Hmm. Um, but anyway. Um, yeah, I think I think part of the reason the story is compelling is because of the. The clear contrast between good and evil. Mm-hmm. There's the quest element in it, and there is the um, the role of friendship being an essential element uh, in uh, the story. I would say the central element.
1: You know, uh, one of the one of the major themes throughout the book is the friendship. Like, I don't know, mo- modern stories, uh, put the romance right at the front. Mm -hmm. And Tolkien's very good about that. That is not front and center. In fact, you can read Lord of the Rings and miss.
0: Yeah. Well, I miss the romance altogether. And I think that's where um, if you if you're familiar with the movies and not the books. Yeah. You mix that up. You mix that up and you you and then you read the books like, oh, wait a minute. That's not really in the book or at best it's hinted Boy, at. Boy, that's subtle. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: Um, I, I also like the, the – m- so many of these epic movies and tales are, 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 and books are about going to get something mm-hmm. uh, so that they can flourish and be great and be happy. Yeah. This is about getting rid of something mm-hmm. uh, so that they can flourish, be great and happy. And I, I, I think that's yeah. an interesting – Uh, That's an interesting uh, twist uh, to the the traditional quest.
0: Yeah. How old were you when you first read the books?
1: I was probably 19, 20. I was old.
0: So was it after you saw the movies? It was after I saw the movies, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what was that experience like, having the movies first and then going back to the books?
1: Um, So I had read The Hobbit when I was young. So I had some concept of the ring, all these things, but I wasn't even aware that the Fellowship of the Ring had even come out, and so I didn't see that till maybe six months after it came out when it was on DVD. I think it was the first time I saw it, and then I saw the following two uh, in theaters. Um, but uh, the I, I think the most shocking part about reading the books after seeing those movies. Was just how much content there that Tolkien takes, and you know how, how much time he takes in telling the story of them mm-hmm. traveling. I remember the first time I read it; it was, you know, because cause in the movie it's like, all right, we're going to start the movie in Hobbiton, yeah, in the Shire, and by like forty-five minutes in, we're going to be in Rivendell, yeah, right. Like that's like. Hundreds of pages. <laughs> yes. like you're like you're like halfway through the book yeah. uh, by the time you get to Rivendell. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that that's something that really stuck out to me, and uh, I think can be a barrier for some people if they've seen the movies and haven't read the books. that
0: mm-hmm. it's a it is more of a slow burn. The books yeah. are more of a slow burn than the movies. So. I'm
1: still waiting for the Tom Bombadil uh, movie to come out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is disappointing. That I mean. Look, if you're Peter Jackson, I mean the extended versions are each like two and a half to three hours. I think the Return of the King extended version is like three and a half hours. It's a long movie. And so you understand. But I mean to me the two most notable omissions that Jackson leaves out are the Tom Bombadil section at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring Mm -hmm. or near the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. And then the other one is … At the end of Return of the King, there's still a big chunk left after they've destroyed the ring because the hobbits go back to the Shire and have to fight to free the Shire from the forces, from sort of the remnant forces of, of Sauron or uh, Saruman, Saruman. Yep. So that, that's not even in the movies. It's just like well, and destroy I... the ring and then a few minutes later it feels like, oh, Frodo's going off with the elves.
1: I... I imagine Jackson just went like, what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah. You know, it's such a – it is a bit of an odd tack on mm-hmm. at, at the end. But it does display that through this epic, through this journey, that that these four hobbits have, have really changed mm-hmm. um, yep. and have developed. And uh, the people of the Shire really need leadership and awakening in, in, yep. in this moment from from some – quasi royal figures.
0: Yeah. And it, I think one of the beauties of the books and the movie it, movies is that it it highlights we can easily be drawn to people who seem to be really important, who have prominent positions, and yet the whole story turns on these seemingly insignificant hobbits. Mm-hmm. I mean, repeatedly throughout the books there's this like, almost this putting down of the hobbits in the sense of like, people are barely aware that they exist. They just look like children mm-hmm. to to, nor- to men basically, and they just they just get overlooked. And part of the the beauty of the story is that they end up playing a central role in the overthrow of evil. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's just a beautiful picture of. What oftentimes in our eye, in the world's eyes, seem insignificant from an eternal perspective can be incredibly significant. And it doesn't have to involve the, you know, playing some key role in an epic story. It's the value of everyday faithfulness. And again, going back to something we discussed on one of the earlier episodes from the Rosner book, um... Whether you think you'll be an important person or not, Mm -hmm. we undervalue the significance of an ordinary life Mm well-lived, a life of faithfulness to God, of being a good employee, being a faithful spouse, raising kids, being a faithful member of your local church, being a faithful neighbor. We underestimate the value of that because we're so caught up in – the big splash or the well-known person and the, the grand things, I, I really do think that when we get to the new creation, we will get to see the great significance of ordinary believers and small things they did in the grand scheme of eternity. Like the faithful grandma who prayed mm-hmm. like crazy for the, for the expansion of the gospel and sent note cards to encourage people. Like I think there will be remarkable celebrations in the new creation over that simple – over the simple acts of faithfulness. Not just the, wow, Moses parted the Red Sea. That's amazing. <laughs> it is. But so is that faithful prayer life of, of the grandma.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I think we just underestimate. And I think oh, yeah. part of what Tolkien helps us see is what the world regards as – Insignificant is often significant when understood from a bigger perspective.
1: Um, Tolkien is Catholic. yes uh, what and and while there's not a on the surface allegory, there are hints of the I'll say positive Christian vision in mm. the story. Yes. Uh, do, do you have a favorite or or, or something uh, that you
0: like? Well, if I remember correctly, I'd have to go back and look. But um, if you understand the time references in the calendar in Lord of the Rings, I believe they start off from Rivendell on what is the equivalent of Christmas Day, mm-hmm. and the Ring is destroyed on what is celebrated in the church calendar as the crucifixion, as the death, yeah March the, March twenty fifth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that seems a lot. It m- seems more than accidental. <laughs>
1: yeah. um. uh, there's a great book. Um, I think you lent it to me actually. Uh, Riken, mm-hmm. The Messiah Comes to Middle-Earth.
0: Yes. Have, have you read through
1: that? Mm-mm. Oh, so good. Um, but basically cast – it talks about the different characters and their role of mm-hmm. prophet, priest and king. Jesus' yeah. G- three offices, right? And how Gandalf fulfills this role of prophet, right? He goes to people and tells them the truth, and they regularly don't listen to him. Mm-hmm. And he has a death and resurrection experience. Yep. Talks about Frodo being the priest, uh, carrying the burden mm-hmm. um, to uh, to the place of destruction. Goes through a death and resurrection experience with with the spider. Yep. Shelob, and then uh, and then uh, Aragorn, uh, you know, uh, the okay. king, obviously. Uh, and um, uh, goes through a death and resurrection experience with the the way of the dead, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was that was really cool. Where I'm like, I yeah. don't know if he meant that. Like that's pretty, that's pretty wild. But you know, know knowing him, he invented languages for this book. <laughs> you know, he he <laughs> yeah. could be that clever. You know, yes, yeah, for sure. That's one of
0: my favorites. Um, another book I have I've only dipped into it. It's called Tolkien Dogmatics. Oh, I've seen that. Where someone yeah. is attempting to kind of. Cr- Create a systematic theology based on Tolkien's writings. That's which, wild. It's interesting. In the preface, he acknowledges Tolkien would hate this because this, <laughs> this is not who he was. Yeah, um, and that's one of the things that again distinguished him from Lewis. Like mm. He was Lewis was a more systematic thinker than Tolkien was on these issues. But yeah, um, well, we probably need to wrap this up, but. Um, yeah, I think what's part of the beauty of Lord of the Rings is it works on multiple levels in terms of I think even as a as a kid you can recognize just the good versus evil. Oh yeah. And the and the and that piece of it as well as the friendship component. But the more you kinda of dive into Tolkien and, and his background and um you see, wow, there's there's layers of complexity there to, to see. And Tim Keller was a big uh, big Tolkien fan there as well. There you go. It uh, <laughs> all comes back to Timmy K.
1: That's right. Today it does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, John, ready to move on? Sure. Time now for This Day in Sports History.
1: All right, This Day in Sports History, June 13th, lucky number 13, 2023. Uh, on this day in 1948, Babe Ruth's final farewell at Yankee Stadium. Uh, he died August 16th. Ah, uh, nineteen fifty-three. Jim Peters runs world record marathon. Uh, runs the world record marathon uh, in two hours, eighteen minutes, and forty seconds.
0: Yeah, it's it's my understanding. Am I correct in this? I think that the the two hour mark has still not been broken for the marathon.
1: Really, I I have I no. I think clue. that's the case. I could ask my sister-in-law; she does those things. Um, nineteen ninety-four. Uh, Chicago Cubs second baseman. Ryan Sandberg retires due to poor play. He forfeits fifteen point seven million dollars of his twenty-five million dollar contract.
0: Wow, It's given up a lot. Shout out to Jordan in Winona Lake there.
1: Yeah, uh, nineteen ninety-five, uh, Major League Baseball, Cleveland Indians, uh, Dennis Martinez, no hits, the Baltimore Orioles,
0: eleven uh, nothing. Shout out Nate in Ohio.
1: Yeah. And Zach in Ohio. Yeah. 97, 1997, 51st NBA championship, Chicago Bulls uh, beat the Utah Jazz four games to two. Yep. Uh, No shocker there, a Bulls championship in the 90s, right? Yeah. Yeah. 2019 NBA Finals Toronto Raptors uh, beat defending champion Golden State Warriors 114 to 110 to win franchise first championship. uh, Last game at Oracle, uh, at Oracle Arena there in Oakland, the MVP, Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. Kawhi Leonard.
0: The man with a strange laugh. You ever ever seen that clip of him laughing? I have many, many times. (laughs) It's so bizarre.
1: Um and kind of and after that Kawhi
0: Leonard went to uh, Los Angeles Clippers. Mm-hmm. And uh we've never we haven't really heard from him much since? No, he's just not been healthy or he's had the load management and that's just not worked out in. Yeah. Yeah. So who do you like out of that list? Well,
1: I don't know. <laughs> I, I think maybe Ryan Sandberg. I mean, it's such a unique unique play. I mean, most of these guys just say, yeah, demote me to AAA. Cut yeah. me. Yeah. Because if they cut him, he gets that money. I can go with that. It's a, it's a pretty unique play from a, from, a, uh, from a player like that.
0: I can go with that. Sounds good to me. One thing you liked.
1: All right. Well, last week uh, in your listening uh, an hour ago in real time <laughs> – uh, I mentioned a podcast from Wondery about uh, James Dolan, uh, Reign of Error. Another – and that takes the, the James Dolan side of things, uh, looks at what's going on in New York, looks, looks, uh, looks at what's going on at Madison Garden. If you want a picture of what it looks like from the basketball end of things, uh, the podcast Shattered, uh, Hope, Heartbreak, in the New York Knicks from The Athletic. Uh, Is going to be your ticket. How many episodes? Eight episodes
0: uh, on that podcast. Is it complete then? It's been done for over a year. Okay.
1: But worth your time for
0: sure. Okay. For me, I'm going to go with the uh, chocolate. Some of the chocolate I brought back from Brussels. I love chocolate. Belgium is obviously known for its uh, chocolate. Brought back these. uh, Caramel or caramel, however you want to pronounce it. Are you, You're a caramel guy, right?
1: I don't really care. I think it's delicious either yeah. way. Um,
0: little half circle or like circle, like, yeah, like little circle, mm. almost like little discs. Delightful. Yeah. Still working my way through that. They are so good. Love caramel. Caramel. However. Yeah. Yeah. All right, John. We've done it. Three episodes today. Yep. All done. Yep. In the can. We have talked Summer Read, Brian Rosner, part three. Make sure you read the last bit. Part four, we'll discuss the next episode. We've talked Lord of the Rings and J.R.R. Tolkien. We've talked Ryan Sandberg. We have talked another Nick's podcast that John likes and the chocolate from Brussels. And so I think by definition, we have covered our various and sundry topics. And so all that's left to say is until next time.
1: Real good. Later.